Chapter 2 of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 2 There was a rush of outer air into the building as they opened the door. The rain still fell heavily, but the wind was rising, and had in it a clean salt smell that contrasted with the close and mouldering atmosphere of the church. The organist drew a deep breath. Ah, he said, what a blessed thing to be in the open air again, to be quit of all their niggling and naggling, to be quit of that pompous old fool the rector, and of that hypocrite Jolliffe, and of that pedant of a doctor. Why does he want to waste money on cementing the vaults? It's only digging up pestilences, and they won't spend a farthing on the organ. Not a penny on the father, Smith, clear and sweet-voiced as a mountain brook. Ah! Oh, he cried, it's too bad. The naturals are worn down to the quick. You can see the wood in the gutters of the keys, and the pedal-boards too short and all to pieces. Ah, oh, well, the organ's like me. Old, neglected, worn out. I wish I was dead. He'd been talking half to himself, but he turned to Westry and said, Forgive me for being peevish. You'll be peevish too when you come to my age, at least if you're as poor then as I am, and as lonely, out of nothing to look forward to. Come along. They stepped out into the dark, for night had fallen, and plashed along the flagged path, which glimmered like a white streamlet between the dark turves. "'I'll take you a short cut, if you don't mind some badly lighted lanes,' said the organist, as they left the churchyard. "'It's quicker, and we shall get more shelter.' He turned sharply to the left, and plunged into an alley so narrow and dark that Westray could not keep up with him, and fumbled anxiously in the obscurity. The little man reached up and took him by the arm. "'Let me pilot you,' he said. "'I know the way. You can walk straight on. There are no steps.' There was no sign of life, nor any light in the houses, but it was not till they reached a corner where an isolated lamp cast a wan and uncertain light that Westry saw that there was no glass in the windows, and that the houses were deserted. "'It's the old part of the town,' said the organist. "'There isn't one house in ten with anyone in it now. All we fashionables have moved further out. Airs from the river are damp, you know, and wharves so very vulgar.' They left the narrow street, and came on to what Westray made out to be a long wharf skirting the river. On the right stood abandoned warehouses, square-fronted, and huddled together like a row of gigantic packing-cases. On the left they could hear the gurgle of the current among the mooring-posts, and the flapping of the water against the quay wall, where the east wind drove the wavelets up the river. The lines of what had once been a horse tramway still ran along the quay, and the pair had some ado to thread their way without tripping till a low building on the right broke the line of lofty warehouses. It seemed to be a church or chapel, having mullioned windows with stone tracery, and a bell-turret at the west end. But its most marked feature was a row of heavy buttresses which shored up the side facing the road. They were built of brick, and formed triangles with the ground and the wall which they supported. The shadows hung heavy under the building, but where all else was black, the recesses between the buttresses were blackest. Westray felt his companion's hand tighten on his arm. "'You will think me as great a coward as I am,' said the organist, "'if I tell you that I never come this way after dark, and should not have come here to-night if I had not had you with me. I was always frightened as a boy at the very darkness in the spaces between the buttresses, and I have never got over it. I used to think that devils and hobgoblins lurked in those cavernous depths, and now I fancy evil men may be hiding in the blackness, all ready to spring out and strangle one.' "'It is a lonely place, this old wharf, and after nightfall—' He broke off and clutched Westray's arm. "'Look,' he said, "'do you see nothing in the last recess?' 
His abruptness made Westrys shiver involuntarily, and for a moment the architect fancied that he discerned the figure of a man standing in the shadow of the end buttress. But as he took a few steps nearer, he saw that he had been deceived by a shadow, and that the space was empty. "'Your nerves are sadly overstrung,' he said to the organist. "'There is no one there. It is only some trick of light and shade. What is the building?' "'It was once a chantry of the Greyfriars,' Mr. Charnel answered, "'and afterwards was used for excise purposes when Cologne was a real port. "'It's still called the Bonding House, but it has been shut up as long as I remember it. "'Do you believe in certain things or places being bound up with certain men's destinies? "'Because I have a presentiment that this broken-down old chapel will be connected somehow or other with the crisis of my life.' Westray remembered the organist's manner in the church, began to suspect that his mind was turned. The other read his thoughts, and said, rather reproachfully, "'Oh, no, I am not mad, only weak and foolish and very cowardly.' They reached the end of the wharf, and were evidently returning to civilization, for a sound of music reached them. It came from a little beer-house, and as they passed they heard a woman singing inside. It was a rich contralto, and the organist stopped for a moment to listen. "'She has a fine voice,' he said, "'and would sing well if she'd been taught. "'I wonder how she comes here.' The blind was pulled down, but did not quite reach the bottom of the window, and they looked in. The rain blurred the panes on the outside, and the moisture had condensed within, so that it was not easy to see clearly. But they made out that a Creole woman was singing to a group of topers who sat by the fire in a corner of the room. She was middle-aged, but sang sweetly, and was accompanied on the harp by an old man. Oh, take me back to those I love, or bring them here to me. I have no heart to rove, to rove, across the rolling sea. Poor thing, said the organist. She's fallen on bad days to have so scurvy a company to sing to. Let us move on. They turned to the right, and came in a few minutes to the high road. Facing them stood a house which had once been of some pretensions, for it had a porch carried on pillars, under which a semicircular flight of steps led up to the double door. A street-lamp which stood before it had been washed so clean in the rain that the light was shed with unusual brilliance, and showed even at night that the house was fallen from its high estate. It was not ruinous, but Ichabod was written on the paintless window-frames and on the rough-cast front, from which the plaster had fallen away in more than one place. The pillars of the porch had been painted to imitate marble, but they were marked with scabrous patches, where the brick core showed through the broken stucco. The organist opened the door, and they found themselves in a stone-floored hall, out of which dingy doors opened on both sides. A broad stone staircase with shadow steps and iron balustrades led from the hall to the next storey, and there was a little pathway of warm matting that threaded its way across the flags and finally ascended the stairs. "'Here is my townhouse,' said Mr. Charnel, used to be a coaching inn called the Hand of God, but you must never breathe a word of that, because it is now a private mansion, and Miss Jolliffe has christened it Bellevue Lodge. A door opened while he was speaking, and a girl stepped into the hall. She was about nineteen, and had a tall and graceful figure. Her warm brown hair was parted in the middle, and its profusion was gathered loosely up behind in the half-formal, half-natural style of a preceding generation. Her face had lost neither the rounded outline nor the delicate bloom of girlhood, but there was something in it that negatives any impression of inexperience, and suggested that her life had not been free from trouble. 
she wore a close-fitting dress of black, and had a string of pale corals round her neck. "'Good evening, Mr. Charnel,' she said. "'I hope you are not very wet,' and gave a quick glance of inquiry at Westry. The organist did not appear pleased at seeing her. He grunted testily, and saying, "'Where is your aunt? Tell her I want to speak to her,' led Westray into one of the rooms opening out of the hall. It was a large room, with an upright piano in one corner, and a great litter of books and manuscript music. A table in the middle was set for tea, a bright fire was burning in the grate, and on either side of it stood a rush-bottomed armchair. "'Sit down,' he said to Westray. "'This is my reception-room, and we will see in a minute what Miss Jolliffe can do for you.' He glanced at his companion, and added, "'That was her niece we met in the passage,' in so unconcerned a tone as to produce an effect opposite to that intended, and to leave Westray to wonder whether there was any reason for his wishing to keep the girl in the background. In a few moments the landlady appeared. She was a woman of sixty, tall and spare, with a sweet and even distinguished face. She too was dressed in black, well-worn and shabby, but her appearance suggested that her thinness might be attributed to privation or self-denial, rather than to natural habit. Preliminaries were easily arranged. Indeed, the only point of discussion was raised by Westray, who was disturbed by scruples lest the terms which Miss Jolliffe offered were too low to be fair to herself. She said so openly, and suggested a slight increase, which, after some demur, was gratefully accepted. "'You're too poor to have so fine a conscience,' said the organist snappishly. "'If you are so scrupulous now, you will be quite unbearable when you get rich with battening and fattening on this restoration.' but he was evidently pleased with Westray's consideration for Miss Jolliffe, and added, with more cordiality, "'You'd better come down and share my meal. Your rooms will be like an ice-house, such a nice as this. Don't be long, or the turtle will be cold. The autoland's baked to a cinder. I will excuse evening dress, unless you happen to have your court suit with you.' Westray accepted the invitation with some willingness, and an hour later he and the organist were sitting in the rush-bottomed armchairs at either side of the fireplace. Miss Jolliffe had herself cleared the table, and brought two tumblers, wine-glasses, sugar, and a jug of water, as if they were natural properties of the organist's sitting-room. "'I did judge Warren Jolliffe an injustice,' said Mr. Charnel, with the reflective move that succeeds a hearty meal. "'His sausages are good. Put on some more coal, Mr. Westray. It is a sinful luxury, a fire in September, and coal at twenty-five shillings a ton. But we must have some festivity to inaugurate the restoration and your advent.' "'Fill a pipe yourself, and then pass me the tobacco.' "'Thank you, I do not smoke,' Westray said, and indeed he did not look like a smoker. He had something of the thin, unsympathetic traits of the professional water-drinker in his face, and spoke as if he regarded smoking as a crime for himself, and an offence for those of less lofty principles than his own. The organist lighted his pipe, and went on, "'This is an airy house, sanitary enough to suit our friend the doctor.' "'every window carefully ventilated on the crack and crevice principle. "'It was an old inn once, when there were more people hereabouts, "'and if the rain beats on the front, you can still read the name through the colouring, "'the Hand of God. "'There used to be a market held outside, "'and a century or more ago an apple-woman sold some pippins to a customer "'just before this very door. "'He said he had paid for them, and she said he had not. "'They came to wrangling, and she called heaven to justify her. "'God strike me dead if I have ever touched your money.' She was taken at her word, and fell dead on the cobbles. They found, clenched in her hand, the two coppers for which she had lost her soul, 
and it was recognised at once that nothing less than an inn could properly commemorate such an exhibition of divine justice. So the hand of God was built, and flourished while Cologne flourished, and fell when Cologne fell. Stood empty ever since, I can remember it, till Miss Jonniffe took it fifteen years ago. She elevated it into Bellevue Lodge, a select boarding-house, and spent what little money that niggardly landlord old Blandaber would give her for repairs in painting out the hand of God on the front. It was to be a house of resort for Americans who came to Cologne. They say in our guide-book that Americans come to see Cologne Church because some of the Pilgrim Fathers' fathers are buried in it, but I've never seen any Americans about. They never come to me. I've been here boy and man for sixty years, and never knew an American do a pennyworth of good to Cologne Church, and they never did a pennyworth of good for Miss Jonniffe, for none of them ever came to Bellevue Lodge, and the select boarding-house is so select that you and I are the only boarders. He paused for a minute and went on. Americans? No, I don't think much of Americans. They're too hard for me. Spend a lot of money on their own pleasure, and sometimes cut a dash with a big donation, where they think it will be properly trumpeted. But they haven't got warm hearts. I don't care for Americans. Still, if you know any about, you can say I'm quite venal, and any one of them restores my organ, I'm prepared to admire the whole lot. Only they must give a little water-engine for blowing it into the bargain. Shutter, the organist of Carisborough Cathedral, has just had a water-engine put in, and now we've got our own new waterworks in Cologne, we could manage it very well here, too. The subject did not interest Westray, and he flung back. "'Is Miss Jolliffe very badly off?' he asked. "'She looks like one of those people who have seen better days.' Ah, "'She's worse than badly off. I believe she's half-starved. I don't know how she lives at all. I wish I could help her, but I haven't a copper myself to jingle onto a tombstone, and she's too proud to take it if I had.' He went to a cupboard in a recess at the back of the room, and took out a squat black bottle. "'Poverty's a chilly theme,' he said. "'Let's take something to warm us before we go on with the variations.' He pushed the bottle towards his friend, but though Westray felt inclined to give way, the principles of severe moderation which he had recently adopted restrained him, and he courteously waved away the temptation. "'You're hopeless,' said the organist. "'What are we to do for you, who neither smoke nor drink, and yet want to talk about poverty? This is some eau de vie, old martlet the solicitor gave me for playing the wedding march at his daughter's marriage.' The wedding march was magnificently rendered by the organist Mr. John Sharnel, you know, with a fourth organ sonata. I misdoubt this ever having paid duty. He's not the man to give away six bottles of anything he paid the excise upon. He poured out a portion of spirit far larger than Westray had expected, and then, becoming intuitively aware of his companion's surprise, said rather sharply, "'If you despise good stuff, I must do duty for us both. Up to the top of the church windows is a good maxim.' and he poured in yet more, till the spirit rose to the top of the cuts, which ran higher than half-way up the sides of the tumbler. There was silence for a few minutes, while the organist puffed testily at his pipe, but a copious draught from the tumbler melted his chagrin, and he spoke again. "'I've had a precious hard life, but Miss Jolliffe's had a harder, and I've got myself to thank for my bad luck, while hers is due to other people. First, her father died. He had a farm at Whitgham, and people thought he was well off.' But when they came to reckon up, he only left just enough to go round among his creditors. So Miss Euphemia gave up the house and came into Cologne. She took this rambling great place because it was cheap at twenty pounds a year, and lived, or half-lived, from hand to mouth, giving her niece, 
the girl, you saw, all the grains, keeping the husks for herself. Then a year ago turned up her brother Martin, penniless and broken, with paralysis upon him. He was a harem-scarum ne'er-do-well. Don't stare at me with that Saul among the prophets look. He never drank. He would have been a better man if he had. The organist made a further call on the squat bottle. He would have given her less bother if he had drunk, but he was always getting into debt and trouble, and then used to come back to his sister as to a refuge, because he knew she loved him. He was clever enough. Brilliant, they call it now, but unstable as water with no lasting power. I don't believe he meant to sponge on his sister. I don't think he knew he did sponge. Only he sponged. He would go off on his travels, no one knew where, though they knew well what he was seeking. Sometimes he was away two months, and sometimes he was away two years. And then, when Miss Jolliffe had kept Anastasia, I mean her niece, all the time, and perhaps got a summer lodger, and seemed to be turning the corner, back would come Martin again to beg money for debts and eat them out of house and home. I've seen that many a time, and many a time my heart has ached for them. And what could I do to help? I haven't a farthing. Last he came back a year ago, with, with death written on his face. I was glad enough to read it there, and think he was come for the last time to worry them. But it was paralysis, and he a strong man, so that it took that fool then for a long time to kill him. He only died two months ago. Here's a better luck to him where he's gone. The organist drank as deeply as the occasion warranted. Don't look so glum, man, he said. I'm not always as bad as this, because I haven't always the means. Old Martlet doesn't give me brandy every day. Westray smoothed away the deprecating expression with which he had felt constrained to discountenance such excesses, and set Mr. Sharnell's tongue a-going again with a question. "'What did you say Jolliffe used to go away for?' "'Oh, it's a long story. It's the nebulae coat again. I spoke of it in the church. The silver and sea-green that turned his head. He would have it he wasn't a Jolliffe at all, but a blandamer, a rightful heir to Fording.' As a boy, he went to Cullen Grammar School and did well, and got a scholarship at Oxford. He did still better there, just when he seemed starting strong in the race of life, this nebuly coat craze seized him and crept over his mind, like the paralysis that crept over his body later on. "'I don't quite follow you,' Westray said. "'Why did he think he was a blandamer? Did he not know who his father was?' "'He was brought up as a son of old Michael Jolliffe, a yeoman who died fifteen years ago.' But Michael married a woman who called herself a widow, and brought a three-year-old son ready-made to his wedding, and that son was Martin. Old Michael made the boy his own, was proud of his cleverness, would have him go to college, and left him all he had. There was no talk of Martin being anything but a jolliffe till Oxford puffed him up, and then he got this crank, and spent the rest of his life trying to find out who his father was. It was a forty years wandering in the wilderness. He found this clue and that, and thought at last he had climbed Pisgah and could see the promised land. But he had to be content with the sight, or mirage, I suppose it was, and died before he tasted the milk and honey. What was his connection with the nebulae coat? What made him think he was a blandamer? "'Oh, I can't go into that now,' the organist said. "'I've told you too much, perhaps, already. You won't let Miss Jolliffe guess I've said anything, will you? She is Michael Jolliffe's own child, his only child.' "'but she loved her half-brother dearly, "'and doesn't like his cranks being talked about. "'Of course, the Cullen Wags have made a tale to tell of him, "'and when he came back, greyer each time "'and wilder-looking from his wanderings, "'they called him Old Nebulae, "'and the boys would make their bow in the street and say, 
"'Good morning, Lord Blandamer. "'You'll hear stories enough about him, "'and it was a bitter thing for his poor sister to bear "'to see her brother a butt and laughing-stock "'all the time that he was frittering away her savings. "'But it's all over now. "'Martin's gone where they don't wear nebuly coats.' "'There was nothing in his fancies, I suppose,' Westry said. "'He must put that to wiser folk than me,' said the organist lightly. "'Ask the rector, or the doctor, or some really clever man.' He had fallen back into his sneering tone, but there was something in his words that recalled a previous doubt, and led Westry to wonder whether Mr. Chardell had not lived so long with the Jolliffes as to have become himself infected with Martin's delusions. His companion was pouring out more brandy and the architect wished him good-night. Mr. Westray's apartment was on the floor above, and he went at once to his bedroom, for he was very tired with his journey, and with standing so long in the church during the afternoon. He was pleased to find that his portmanteau had been unpacked, and that his clothes were carefully arranged in the drawers. This was a luxury to which he was little accustomed, and was, moreover, a fire to fling cheerful flickerings on spotlessly white curtains and bed-linen. Miss Jolliffe and Anastasia had between them carried the portmanteau up the great well staircase of the stone, which ran from top to bottom of the house. It was a task of some difficulty, and there were frequent pauses to take breath and setting downs of the portmanteau to rest aching arms. But they got it up at last, and when the straps were undone, Miss Euphema dismissed her niece. "'No, my dear,' she said, "'let me set the things in order. It is not seemly that a young girl should arrange men's clothes.' There was a time when I should not have liked to do it myself, but now I am so old it does not very much matter. She gave a glance at the mirror as she spoke, adjusted a little bit of grizzled hair which had strayed from under her cap, and tried to arrange the bow of ribbon round her neck so that the frayed part should be as far as possible concealed. Anastasia jolly thought, as she left the room, that there were fewer wrinkles and a sweeter look than usual in the old face, and wondered that her aunt had never married. Youth, looking at an old maid, traces spinsterhood to man's neglect. It is so hard to read in sixties plainness the beauty of sixteen, to think that underneath the placidity of advancing years may lie buried, yet unforgotten, the memory of suits urged ardently and quenched long ago in tears. Miss Euphemia put everything carefully away. The architect's wardrobe was of the most modest proportions, but to her it seemed well furnished, and even costly. She noted, however, with the eye of a sportsman marking down a covey, sundry holes, rents, and missing buttons, and resolved to devote her first leisure to their rectification. Such mending, in anticipation and accomplishment, forms indeed a well-defined and important pleasure of all properly constituted women above a certain age. "'Poor young man,' she said to herself, I'm afraid he's had no one to look after his clothes for a long time. And in her pity she rushed into the extravagance of lighting the bedroom fire. After things were arranged upstairs, she went down to see that all was in order in Mr. Westray's sitting-room, and as she moved about there, she heard the organist talking to the architect in the room below. His voice was so deep and raucous that it seemed to jar the soles of her feet. She dusted lightly a certain structure, which, resting in tears above the chimney-piece, served to surround a looking-glass with meaningless little shelves and niches. Miss Jolliffe had purchased this piece of resistance when Mrs. Kazel, the widow of the armonger, had sold her household effects preparatory to leaving Cologne. "'It is an overmantel, my dear,' 
she had said to dubious Anastasia, when it was brought home. "'I did not really mean to buy it, but I had not bought anything the whole morning, and the auctioneer looked so fiercely at me that I felt I must make a bid. Then no one else said anything. So here it is. But I dare say it will serve to smarten the room a little, and perhaps attract lodgers.' Since then it had been brightened with a coat of blue enamel paint, and a strip of brusa silk, which Martin had brought back from one of his wanderings, was festooned at the side, so as to hide a patch where the quicksilver showed signs of peeling off. Miss Jolliffe pulled the festoon a little forward, and adjusted in one of the side niches a present-for-a-good-girl cup and saucer which had been bought for herself at Beacon Hill Fair half a century ago. She wiped the glass dome that covered the basket of artificial fruit. She screwed up the banner screen that protected from the mantelpiece, she straightened out the bead mat on which the stereoscope stood, and at last surveyed the room with an expression of complete satisfaction on her kindly face. An hour later, Westray was asleep, and Miss Jolliffe was saying her prayers. She added a special thanksgiving for the providential direction to her house of so suitable and gentlemanly a lodger, and a special request that he might be happy whilst he should be under her roof. But her devotions were disturbed, by the sound of Mr. Charnel's piano. "'He plays most beautifully,' she said to her niece as she put out the candle. "'But I wish he would not play so late. I am afraid I have not thought so earnestly as I should at my prayers.' Anastasia Jolliffe said nothing. She was grieved because the organist was thumping out old waltzes, and she knew by his playing that he had been drinking. End of chapter 2